The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the theme verse that we've been using throughout our study of church history. Uh, This is a promise that Christ made that there would always be a true church that preaches the gospel of Christ and holds true to the essential doctrines of the faith that actually make it Christ's church. And it's a promise that Christ's church will be here until he comes again. Uh, We've discussed in previous weeks as we're have been talking about church history. We talked about the doctrinal essentials. I mean, the very things that have to be held to in order to make a church a true church. And so we've talked about justification by faith alone, about baptism of believers by immersion, about the Bible as our only authority, and also about soul liberty. And our search throughout history for the true church is looking for groups of people that have always held on to those principles and they've never surrendered those doctrines of the faith. Now the fact that Jesus promised that there would be a church is actually what gives us history to trace. And so we've looked at the doctrine, uh, we've talked about what historians have said about it, we've even gone so far as to talk about what our enemies have said about the church. And what we found out is that there have been groups of believers since the time of Christ that believe the very same things that we believe here in the Berean Baptist Church. And so in our study of the church, we've, we've gone through the first part of the history of the church. We progressed, uh, progressed a, a little bit here from the first century up to the beginning of the fourth century. And the first century was known as the apostolic age. Uh, This was after the resurrection of Christ, and it was the time that the church transitioned from being mostly a Jewish church to a Gentile one. It was also a time of the rapid spread of the gospel when it began to go out in all directions from Jerusalem. And then it's also a time of uh, that the church moved its center from the place there in Jerusalem and was established in Antioch of Syria. But it was also a time of growing apostasy. And what we find in this particular period, what records we have in the New Testament, we find the apostles fighting against the growing uh, heresy in the church and things that would destroy the church from within. Then uh, what we've also talked about is the second period of history, which is the Anti-Nicene Age. And this was the time before the Council of Nicaea in 325. And it was characterized by two different types of churchmen. The first of those were ones who were in the early 2nd century that had met the apostles, had actually been taught by them, and those are known as the apostolic fathers. And then we have another group of men that came along in the latter part of the 2nd century and into the 3rd century, and these men didn't know the apostles, but they were still holding strong to the doctrines and they were defending the faith. And these are men that are known as the apologists. 
And it was during this particular time that the major heresies that still plague Christianity today arose. And these were the errors of ecclesiasticism, of sacerdotalism, baptismal generation, and infant baptism. Now, ecclesiasticism is the formation of the invisible church, the teaching of the invisible church, and uh, or the universal church, I'm sorry, I should say, the teaching of a universal church which has a hierarchical type of government, and it's the removal of local church authority which the New Testament teaches to an outside authority that takes uh, control of the church. As sacerdotalism goes hand in hand with that, uh, it goes hand in hand with ecclesiasticism because what it is is the investing of of power in priests and making them the mediators between man and God. And then from there, the next downward progression would be to take those sacraments that the priest exercise for the people that's administered by the priest and make those things the actual means of salvation. And so the first rite of the Christian faith, which is baptism, was perverted during that time and baptism was taught to be the means of regeneration. Now, what baptism is always done, it's always signified salvation, but baptism is not salvation itself. And so, in baptismal regeneration, the thing that is symbolized becomes the reality, or it actually becomes the means by which a person can be saved. And since the priesthood is a sacerdotal priesthood, baptism administered by the priest means that people cannot be saved without a priest. And so that even puts more power into the hands of the church because it is the church that authorizes the priest. Well, once you've determined that baptism is the thing that saves you, then the thing to do is to get baptized as quickly as possible. And so next comes infant baptism. And so you see that you start out here with, a, with an error, a mistake in church polity, and that very quickly degenerates into all kinds of heresies, really a mess of heresies. And so this is what happens whenever you mess with God's plan, with Christ's plan for his church. You end up with a very bad plan for the church. Well, during the anti-Nicene age, there were two main groups that stood against the departures from the faith. These were the Montanists and the Novatians, and they had received their names from prominent leaders of that particular time, but actually they were nothing different from Christians that were descended from uh, the apostles. They're people that held on to the truth. They wouldn't compromise when there were so many others at that time that had departed from the faith. And so these two particular groups, and another one that we'll mention in, in just a moment, uh, these kinds of groups are the ones that helped to fulfill this promise that Christ made, that they were his church. They guaranteed the promise of perpetuity. So these are the people that were his actual church holding on to those same doctrines of the faith. So we complete those first two times, uh, the time of the apostles and then also the anti-Nicene age. And now we come to the third period of church history that we need to discuss. And this is the imperial age. Uh, this was the time that the council of Nicaea took place. This was after the ascension of Constantine to become the emperor of Rome. So what I want to do is talk to you about Constantine first, and then we're going to come back and talk just a little bit about this council of Nicaea. So first this evening in the imperial age is the commitment of Constantine. And, and this is called the imperial age because this is when the, the government 
and apostate Christianity joined forces to create the first church-state government. Constantine became the emperor in 306. That was after Diocletian abdicated. And he came to power amidst a, 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 a struggle among other rivals. Now, by this particular time, uh, apostate Christianity had saturated the entire Roman Empire and the outright paganism of Rome had begun to decline. So the old gods and goddesses didn't really cut it anymore because apostate Christianity had now assigned new names to those gods and goddesses and they had come up with their own forms of idolatry. Constantine turned out to be a, a shrewd politician and he knew that in order to come into the fullness of his power, that he had to appease this huge group or this faction of Christians that he had in the empire. And so he had to do something in order to draw them over to his side. And so it was then that Constantine had this very convenient, miraculous vision of a cross in the sky in which he claimed he saw the words written in Latin that said, by this you shall conquer. Now, what you and I know is that God no longer reveals himself in that way any longer. We don't need visions in the sky. We don't need dreams. and We don't need miracles. We don't need things that are supernatural. But what we actually have is the completed word of God that tells us everything that we need to know about him and to follow him. So we have the Bible. But Constantine... Uh, had this vision, and this vision was actually a ruse, but nonetheless, through this vision, he claimed that he was converted to Christianity. Now, there were apostate Christians then, just as there are now, that love that kind of stuff. They love all things that are miraculous. And so these paganized Christians sucked up that vision of Constantine, and they really did believe that it was something that was sent from God. And so now Constantine had found his formula for solidifying his power. So Constantine was converted to Christianity, but not true Christianity. He was an apostate Christian, certainly not believing the same things that Christ and the apostles taught. And it's, uh, it's no wonder that Roman Catholicism claims Constantine as their own. So he was converted to this apostate Christianity, and what he'd done was to unify the empire through a common religion, and to make sure that it stayed that way, Constantine made it the official state religion of Rome. And so what he did was to cut a deal with Sylvester I, who was the presiding bishop of Rome at that time. And in this deal, Constantine would retain the religious title of the Caesars. Now, the old Roman Empire, in that empire, the Caesars were called the Pontiff Maxim the high priest, the great high priest. And you may remember that we talked about that in the book of, of Matthew, how that the Roman coins had Caesar's picture on the front. The front side was a headshot of Caesar, but on the opposite side of that coin was a picture of Caesar in the robes of the high priest. And the Jews actually hated to carry those coins around because to them that was like carrying an idol in their pocket. And this was because that Caesar claimed to be divine, and the Jews knew that they couldn't worship Caesar. And so what Jesus said, he said, give Caesar his due, pay Caesar his taxes, but what you cannot do, you cannot worship him. God is the only one to be worshipped. Well, Constantine wasn't willing to give up all of that, and so although he did claim to be a Christian, he retained this title of the high priest, and still today, the popes of Rome use that title. 
And so as the high priest, Constantine ruled over the church, and it was him who called this Council of Nicaea in 325. Now let's talk about that for a moment, the Council of Nicaea. And let me just back up a little bit to tell you what was going on that uh, caused the Council of Nicaea to be called. And I want to say uh, to you first that this council was not Christian. This was a council of apostate Christianity, as all so-called church councils in history have been. Nicaea is a place in modern-day Turkey, and Constantine called together all the bishops of the apostate churches, and they began to hammer out some of the canon laws that would hold this whole monstrous coalition together. And during that time, they discussed various theological issues, One of them was the challenge of Arius to the deity of Christ, which shows you that not everything that they discussed was bad, and the council was not all bad, but that's merely a tactic of Satan. Because what he does is he takes a little bit of truth and he mixes it in with a gross error to give that error some kind of credibility. And this is what we find going on at the Council of Nicaea. But the big positive thing that came out of this for the government and for the church at that time was that they achieved the consent of all bishops to give in to a ruling, central ruling authority. Now, the ecclesiastical system had been growing for about 200 years, and now that they have the emperor on board, then all of these groups are now wrapped up into a system that's sanctioned by the state. And so Christianity had already, it had already been recognized in 313 by an act of toleration by Constantine, but now it becomes the state church of the Roman Empire. Now let me quote to you from William R. Downing. He said, this was the establishment of the Constantinian principle, or the union of church and state, a hybrid sterile, devoid of life and spirituality, a system that was given power to coerce men for the good of their souls. This principle would forever change the character of established Christianity and church history. Those believers and churches that held tenaciously to the New Testament pattern would be persecuted by the civil magistrates under the Church of Rome and later Protestant bodies. And so you can see why that we label one era of church history the anti-Nicene, because after Nicaea there's this great change. The Constantinian principle is applied, and that comes into effect after the Council of Nicaea, where the state gave the church authority to bludgeon people into their brand of Christianity and do it for their own good. That's what we call the ruination of soul liberty. Now, historically speaking, church leaders are, are, are classified according to the Council of Nicaea. Either they are the anti-Nicene fathers, that's before the Council, or they are the Nicene during the time, or they are post-Nicene fathers. So this was really a period of great change, And at first, Christians, even apostate Christians, were persecuted by Rome. But now Christianity has gone uptown, all the way to the emperor's throne. And now the persecuted became the persecutors. And the Christianity that was being practiced in the Roman Empire was not the Christianity of Christ and of the apostles. Now the changes that were made in this particular time reverberated throughout the history of Christianity as the church backed by the state began to increase more and more in its power. Now let's take just a moment then to look at the doctrinal errors of this period. And we don't really need to 
uh, spend a great deal of time here because we've already discussed these. Because these are a time when those previous errors are now coming into their fruition. Ecclesiasticism is now state-sanctioned. Baptismal regeneration is not the position of just a scattered bunch of churches. But now that becomes the official, the official teachings of the church. It's now the canon law. It's the official it's the official position of both the state and of the church. And you can see from this that the gospel had been overthrown and what had been put in its place was another gospel, as the Apostle Paul calls that. And I think it's very interesting that in Roman Catholic history, they steadfastly maintain that, that uh, Constantine was truly converted. And they say that even though Constantine postponed his baptism, his own baptism, until he died... And he was baptized in order to wash away his sins. And we also remember that paganism has always been a part of Roman Catholicism. And I remind you that Catholic simply means universal. So what you have here is the Roman universal church. I think that sounds a whole lot more ominous than Roman Catholic Church, doesn't it? The Roman Universal Church, that's what it actually means. And so now you have the church that's been linked up to pagans, and they've given their gods new names. And so in Catholicism, you have Jesus and Mary and the apostles and the saints that are just new names for the old gods of the paganism of the Roman Empire. And then uh, sacerdotalism, uh, the priesthood had become more entrenched, it claimed that it had a connection to the Old Testament priesthood, but in reality it was more like the priesthood of pagans, as you consider what's done in the bloody mass. So pagan Rome had died out, and what's been put into its place is ecclesiastical Rome. And you actually have a new paganism. It's Christianized paganism. Well, one of those forms of paganism is the veneration of relics. You heard of that? You know what that is? The veneration of relics? This is where the Roman Catholic Church teaches that they ought to worship articles of clothing that they believe that came from the saints, or they might worship a lock of hair, or they might take a piece of a bone of one of the saints and they venerate that or they worship that. And you might even remember that just a few years ago that they were supposed to have found an ossuary that contained the bones of uh, James the Apostle. Now, the Catholics were scurrying around trying to decide, should we worship these bones? And if the same is true of the Shroud of Turin, is that something that's really associated with Christ? Was that the burial cloth of Christ? And so you find many Roman Catholics that venerate the Shroud of Turin. And then during the Crusades, the Crusaders uh, spent a good, good deal of time going throughout the Holy Land looking for various articles that they could worship. One of those searches I know that you've heard of is the search for the Holy Grail or the chalice of the Last Supper. And it turns out that somebody found that. It's actually the thing that got Indiana Jones' dad killed, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he thankfully drank from that cup and was returned to life, so came back to life. But then along with all those heresies came another one that was detrimental to this entire scheme because now you could actually be born into the church. The church and the state are one entity. And so if you're born into the church-state government, then you automatically become a citizen of the church. And still today, that's true in Catholicism, that, uh, you know, it's really not uncommon for you to ask somebody, well, are you a Christian? 
And they'll say, oh, yes, I'm a Catholic. Or sometimes they might even say, I'm a Baptist. And you'd say, well, why are you a Catholic or or why are you a Baptist? And they say, oh, that's what Mama was. So that's what I am. And so you can be born into it without actually having any idea what it's all about. Well, you might be born a Roman Catholic, but you're never going to be born as a Baptist. I mean, the Roman Catholics will claim you if your third cousin twice removed was ever a Catholic. But if you're going to become a Baptist, you have to be more than born. You have to be born again. And then in 416, there was another heresy that was just getting started at the end of the Anti-Nicene Age, and now it became official church law, and that was infant baptism. Now, it took a while for that to happen, but in 416, that was declared to be official, that babies were supposed to be baptized, and so if you can be born into the church, then what you really need is a, is a ceremony to stamp that with and to make it official. So, in consideration of, of all these doctrinal shenanigans that was going on, I mean, we just have to pose a question that we posed before, and that is, with all of that happening, how could Rome have been a true church? Now, what we maintain, of course, is that they never were, but the Protestants claim that they were a church that needed to be reformed, and yet we're still talking about a thousand years before that would actually happen. So we have to ask the question, where was the true church of Christ? Where was there somebody at that time who's actually teaching what the Bible says and what the apostles said? Where is the church when all this apostasy is going on? Now, in the official church of Rome, there is no gospel. The gospel has been perverted by this time. Church government had been perverted. Soul liberty had been destroyed. And yet the Protestants say that this church is our mother and that's what they claim is their heritage, that they, the daughters of this slut that's called Roman Catholicism, that they're the daughters of Rome? I mean, for, I, for sure I'd be loathed to claim a harlot as my mother. And I don't actually have to. Because while Roman Catholicism was growing into the monstrosity that it became, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ was being protected from the gates of hell. And those gates of hell were Roman Catholicism. Well, we, we've, there's no way that, that true believers could have come through that church. And so who is teaching the truth during this time? Who are these people? Well, let's talk next about New Testament groups in this period. Now, sadly to say, Christians had a new set of persecutors. Pre-Constantinian Rome was pagan. It was opposed to all churches. And so true believers were being driven out of places by this persecution, driven out of their homes, and they started to take up residence in places like the uh, valleys in the Alps and of the Piedmont. Piedmont is an area of northern Italy. One of the most interesting places that I've ever visited was, is, is Andorra. Uh, that's a small little country that's in the Pyrenees Mountains between southern France and Spain. And it's easy to see uh, by looking at the terrain there and all those valleys and remote places how it would be easy for Christians to hide. But this is what the Christians of that age had to do. They had to spread out into the remote areas because now they're fleeing this new enemy. And the new enemy is not the pure pagans any longer, but rather this apostate Christianity that has become the church of Rome. So they have this new threat that has the power of the state behind them. 
And so Christians in this particular time had to flee that bunch of murders, and so they would hide out in many places, the Piedmont, the Alps, or in the Taurus Mountains. That's the area around the Black Sea. They would hide in places like that because they didn't want to be saved by the Roman Catholics. And if you don't want to be saved by the Roman Catholics, then they'll just kill you. Well, in order to maintain this monolithic system of church and state, you have to get rid of dissenters. I mean, that becomes the official policy. And, and actually, that only makes sense. If you believe in a church-state government, this makes absolute sense. This, this is what you would do. I mean, if we have someone in, in the United States who is a dissenter, who's an insurrectionist and uh, is against our government, what we try to do is we try to get rid of those people. And if you are an insurrectionist, then you're going to pay the price for that. Now, you just take that kind of thought and you put it over into a church-state government, it only makes sense that you have to get rid of people who have religious dissent. Because if you have these churches that are preaching against the church-state government, then that becomes a threat to you. And Rome was not going to tolerate that. And so that actually becomes a principle of all church-state governments. All of them do this. This is why when the church joins with the state, you always find persecution. It's inevitable. Even in the beginning of our country, when the colonies were founded, the colonies here were founded with church-state governments. And so this is why you have things like the Salem witch trials. It's why you have people that are put into stocks because they disagree with the government. It's why that men like Roger Williams was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony and had to leave that place. This is the very reason. And, and, and in, in kind of an odd poetic justice, it's actually the, way, the reason that Maryland was founded. Maybe you didn't know this, but Maryland was a haven for Roman Catholics who were persecuted by Protestants and, and uh, who had just been tired of being under the oppression of the Roman Catholics all this time. So they reversed the tables on them and they persecuted Roman Catholics and they left and had to start their own colony of Maryland. And then, after religious freedom was established in America, Presbyterians who longed to believe in church-state government had to change the original articles of the Westminster Confession because it allowed civil magistrates to enforce religious laws. And when you no longer have a church-state government, then you don't need those kinds of things in your statement of faith. And so the Presbyterians in America had to change that. They got rid of the, of the parts of their, the articles of faith that said it's all right for the church to enforce religion. Now, what we've done, we, we've talked about two of the groups, the Montanists and the Novatians, and true churches in this particular time were still being called by those names all the way up to the 8th century. And they were really no different than churches of the New Testament. But to that group, or to those two groups, we have to add another name, and that is the Donatist. The Donatist. Well, they weren't rivals to the Montanists and the Novatians, but they were really just another group that was called by their most prominent leader. And their issues were the very same as the Novatians and the Monetists had. They were in favor of a regenerated church membership. That's the most notable thing about them. And so that, of course, would put them at odds with Rome because the church-state government said that you can be born into the church. So with Rome, infants are baptized and infants aren't saved because they can't put their faith in Christ. So anybody that is actually forced 
into church membership without a conscious decision of faith it would be of course unregenerate they're not believers well the Donatist controversy with Rome hit its peak in the years of 411 to 415 and this is when they came in conflict with Augustine Augustine was the bishop of Hippo in northern Africa where the Donatists were the most prominent and I know that sometimes we get confused about him uh, was Augustine a good guy or was he a bad guy well, you know that Jesus said in Matthew 23, I talked a little bit about it this morning and, and also last week, he said that people should follow the Pharisees when they were speaking the truth, that you should obey the truth. When everyone preaches truth, you obey that. And when they're not, then you abandon them. And that is exactly what you have to do with Augustine. When he preaches the truth about something, and of course you're to believe that, but when he's not, then you have to abandon him. Now, here, here is something that we want to make no mistake about, that Augustine was a Roman Catholic, and he drank the Kool-Aid of Constantine. He believed in forcing people into the church, and that was something that the Donatists could not accept. Now, unless you think, uh, well, you know, when we, we read the Bible, we, we surely have to wonder, where in the world would anybody ever get the idea that it's all right to force people into the church? I mean, why would anybody believe that? Because we don't see Jesus and the apostles going around hitting people on the head to make them Christians. So why do they believe things like this? And we might just assume, well, they don't have any scripture to support that. There, there's no way that they can say that it's all right to do that. Well, actually, they do have scripture for this. Misinterpreted scripture. So let me show you for just a minute how that Augustine defended his position. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14, if you would. And this is a parable that Jesus told, very similar to one that we studied in Matthew 22 just a few weeks ago. In Luke chapter 14, in verse number 16, Jesus gives this parable. It says, Then he said unto him, that's Jesus talking, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled." For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now you notice there in verse number 23, Jesus said, compel them to come. And Augustine took the, that word compel and he said that means coerce. In other words, force them to come. And then he took that and he applied it to the right of the church to force people into the church. And so what we have there is the complete destruction of soul liberty. Well, Augustine and the Donatists argued over this position, and they came in front of a civil court in Carthage in 411, 
And there were 279 Donatist pastors that were there. And there were 286 Roman Catholic bishops that were there. And they stood before the magistrate and they argued over this. And the magistrate sided with the Roman Catholics. And you might imagine that he would because that's the state religion. So there were appeals that were made over that for a while, but all the appeals were lost. And so in 414, the emperor declared that Donatists had lost all of their civil rights. And then in 415, he said that anyone who's caught attending one of the Donatist assemblies should be put to death. Well, they didn't stop preaching because of that. They didn't stop because the emperor threatened them. As the apostles said in the New Testament, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so the Donatists said, what does the emperor have to do with the church? And that was the wrong position if you were going to get along with the emperor and with the Roman Catholic Church. And so what they did, they declared their soul liberty. And because of that, they lost their state liberty. So these Donatists, they're, they're nothing different than the Monetists or the Novatians. They stood up against infant baptism. They were against ecclesiasticism. They were for soul liberty. They were for regenerate church membership. They were true churches existing outside of Roman Catholicism, and they traced their doctrines all the way back to the apostles. Well, to wrap up our study for tonight... I'm going to move from Carthage in North Africa to much, much further north, and that's into the British Isles. So I want to talk to you for just a little bit about British Christians during this time. See, long before the Roman Catholic Church reached Britain, there were real Christians that were there. Augustine pushed Catholicism into Britain uh, under Pope Gregory I in 597, but in the previous six centuries, there were already Christians that were there going all the way back to 63 AD. But there is a particular person that I know you've heard of. This man was in the 5th century. He's during this time there. We're talking about the imperial age. Everybody's heard his name, and that's Patrick. And if you got pinched on March the 17th this past Monday because you didn't wear something green, well, you can thank Patrick for that. And... Uh, he, he was a man who lived in Britain, but he was captured when he was young and sold as a slave in Ireland. Later, he made his way back to Britain. But then he, he gave his life to become a missionary among people in Ireland. Well, you know very well that the Roman Catholics claim him as a saint. I mean, they've given him a four-leaf clover and a box of Lucky Charms, and so he's one of their saints. But uh, he, he was this person. He was a missionary that came back to Ireland, and he was there... Uh, more than a hundred years before the first Roman Catholic ever showed up in the British Isles. And history shows us then that Patrick was not a Roman Catholic. He was a real Christian. And what he did was to baptize 12,000 people during his lifetime. He started 365 churches in the British Isles, and he was not a Catholic. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know it first of all because he was preaching there 136 years before the Roman, uh, Roman Catholics ever showed up. And then when he baptized, he baptized strictly baptized believers. Or he baptized believers, rather. And he did it strictly by immersion. That's the only thing that he practiced. And, and the Roman Catholics had already declared that infant baptism was the way that it's supposed to be done. And that was done earlier in the 5th century. But Patrick didn't do that. And when he started his churches, each church had one pastor. 
And the, and the pastor was ahead of that church and of no other church. And so he was against ecclesiasticism. There was no governmental control. There's no hierarchy in his churches. And then, and then you listen to this, that when, when the Roman Catholics actually did arrive in Britain, then what did they do? Well, Augustine was against soul liberty. And what the Roman Catholics did then was try to force these established believers in, in those churches into their system. Well, Patrick was already dead by that time, by the time that uh, Augustine got there. But his churches resisted Roman Catholicism. In 664, some of those churches surrendered to Catholicism under the uh, Synod of Whitby. But there were others of those churches that held out. They held out against Roman Catholicism just as Christ said that they would. And so they continued to resist the gates of hell when Rome came calling. So Patrick was far from being a Roman Catholic. He was a New Testament Christian. His, his, his converts resisted the church-state government. And I know what poor Patrick has done. He's turned over in his grave many, many times because of what Roman Catholicism has done to his memory. Well, I think that you and I know that the history of the church in Britain is very, very important to us. The truth of salvation by grace through faith alone thrived in the British Isles for many, many centuries. And our Baptist forefathers were there, and they died defending their beliefs against the great whore of Roman Catholicism. And Baptist churches remained free from Rome's influence up till about 600 AD. As I said, 597 was the time that... Uh, Augustine showed up there under the uh, command of Pope Gregory. So when Rome came there, they came storming in, and what they wanted to do was to try and tear down the true gospel church. But the gospel survived there, as Christ said that it would. And we owe our American religious freedom to those people who stood strong on the faith in the British Isles. Now, we're going to get a chance to talk more about English Baptists as we go throughout our study. But before we get there, there, there's just a very, very dark period that we have to go through. As Rome kept increasing its power, it took the world into the darkest period of its history. Now, Roman Catholicism at this time was so awful and it was so twisted that what they needed to do is thank God every day that God had already said, I won't destroy the world by a flood because that surely would have happened. It was a terrible, horrible system. And what happened was that Satan had his own flood. And his flood was a river of blood that flowed out of the veins of Baptist people. More than 50 million Baptists lost their lives during this next period that we're going to talk about. So next week we're going to come back and talk about that period, the darkest period in the world's history ruled by Roman Catholicism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, time spent here tonight looking into the history of the church. And Lord, we're so thankful that we can say that we are the descendants of Baptist forefathers who held on to the truth, that preached the truth, that would not surrender under threats of persecution, under death. And many of our people did, in fact, die for the gospel of Christ. Lord, we don't know if that's going to happen to us. It very well could becomes more and more difficult every day to preach the truth to people. So, Lord, we pray that if that time should come upon us, that we would do the same as they did, that you give us the grace to be overcomers, that we accept whatever comes, 
and stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.